Scott here with another episode of the History Unplugged podcast. Religious beliefs have been the source of food rules basically since the beginning of religion. The Old Testament allowed the eating of an animal that had a split hoof and chewed the cud, but not if it didn't do both of those things, meaning that you can eat a cow, but you can't eat a pig or a rabbit. Centuries later, Pythagoras told his followers not to eat beans because they contained souls, and kosher and halal rules forbade the shrimp cocktail. Later, the Catholic Church forbade eating meat on Fridays, to fast to atone for committing sins, and now, pork is nearly impossible to find throughout the Muslim world, and I speak from personal experience here, or non-kosher food in heavily Jewish areas. But there are dozens if not hundreds of other ways that religious belief has affected our diet, even if, and especially we don't realize it. For example, Little Debbie snack cakes and Kellogg cereals are both rooted in the Seventh-day Adventist movement. Tofurky was born in Tennessee at the Farm Commune. Eastern religion has very outsized influence on the sort of foods you would get at Whole Foods in America today. Today's guest is Christina Ward, author of Holy Food, How Cults, Communes, and Religious Movements Influenced What We Eat. We look at the genesis and ongoing evolution of how once small fringe groups had and still have outsized influence on our food culture. And we see that even people who don't have a strong religious belief have a very large moral element to guide their diet that goes way beyond nutritional science. There's a lot to chew on on this episode, pardon the pun. I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Christina Ward. And one more thing before we get started with this episode, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. I lived overseas for many years, and one of the biggest bottlenecks to international living is money transfers. You want to withdraw money from an ATM to access funds from your American bank account, and you don't realize you're getting hit with a $10 charge every single time you do that. Yeah, that did happen to me. So if you're dining in dollars or want to do business in bot, what a Wise account does is let you send, spend, and receive money in different currencies. Wise is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. This goes from a night out at a tapas bar in Spain to buying a property in the Yucatan. So if you're a digital nomad in Bali or want to send money back to mom, it's simple. And this is all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Wise works in over 160 countries, so your money's always at your fingertips. And over half of the transfers get their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this app. Join 16 million customers and learn how a Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com unplugged. That's wise.com unplugged. One more time, wise.com unplugged. We're going to look at religious prohibitions on eating in this episode, and it's easy to be glib as you look at this because some prohibitions, there's at least a logic behind it if we don't practice it. Others can seem to make no sense, and we'll explain the why behind it, and I think once we're at the end of our conversation, we'll at least see that all of us do this to one degree or another. But before getting too far ahead of myself, I want to ask the question, if I were to follow the religious prohibitions of food of every single belief system on earth, would I die because it's completely mutually incompatible? Or is there one thing out there, tofu, tofurkey, whatever it is, that will satisfy every religious belief system on earth and I can eat it and I won't die? Does that exist out there somewhere? It does. Leafy greens. If you Applying every prohibition, one of the foods that is remaining is leafy greens. So you could live on salads. Now, you'd be fairly low energy because there's not a lot of protein there, but leafy greens would be the way to go. Okay. So carnivore diet, that's more of a nutrition thing, not a sort of religion that says you must eat meat all the time. 
You know, what's interesting about that is it is totally non-religious, but becoming sacralized. As a lot of folks, if you're looking, you're kind of following that kind of all carnivore diet, a lot of those folks that are doing that are starting to embrace a kind of spurious version of so-called pan-Nordic paganism. So it's interesting how we tend to ritualize and sacralize the foods that we're choosing to eat. That's an interesting point. And I think we'll come back to this a lot where a modern person might laugh at, say, the Old Testament that doesn't allow you to eat shellfish or an animal that chews the cud but doesn't have a split hoof or vice versa, but then approach their new diet, which is nearly approaching religious fervor and may cross that line at some point. We don't know. So we could see that carnivore diet or lying diet hitching its cart to some sort of older belief system. Yeah, it happens. So- Let's do a survey of religious prohibitions on food, and let's go back to an ancient one that is probably better known than any other. I was talking about Old Testament prohibitions on food. The book of Leviticus has whole sections about this. It will say, you can eat an animal that has a split hoof completely divided and choose the cud, for example, a goat or a cow, but you can't eat an animal that's one or the other. So you can't eat a pig because it has a split hoof but doesn't chew the cud. Or you can't eat a rabbit because it does chew the cud, but doesn't have a split hoof. So could you describe Old Testament prohibitions on food? Yes, I can. So what's interesting about looking at it from a modern viewpoint, first of all, is if you followed the rules of Leviticus, you would actually have a really food safe diet. And following the cleanliness outlines and the types of food you're eating, you would really reduce the opportunity to get infected with a foodborne pathogen. So, you know, there's some merit from building your tribe, building your society and keeping them safe and healthy to have a certain amount of food rules. And again, if we we have to remember this is pre-science. And so there's a lot of magical thinking that happens about where does the food come from? Well, it comes from God. And so, you know, God's got to give us some rules about how to eat it. Specifically, you know, oftentimes the people, you know, Judaism, Islam, Christianity is referred to as people of the book, you know, or the Abrahamic religions, because they all have roots in that Old Testament and all of them reference back to Leviticus in one way or the other. Right. This is a line of thinking that was very popular in the 19th century, where religious scholars, whether Christians or Muslims, were trained to argue against modern science, modern scientists saying that our empirical evidence disproves things that are in these holy books. And then Christian writer would come back and say, no, there are scientific truths that happen way back in the Iron Age. So if you were to follow these prescriptions, you would have a much better chance of avoiding food contamination by eating, say, a cow instead of a pig. So God is hiding these scientific truths here. And a Muslim scholar might argue the same thing. Can you get more into that in, let's say, the Iron Age, if you're following Levitical prescriptions? Does this lead to healthier living if you're eating these animals but not these other animals based on what you've seen? It does only in the sense of like food safety. So there's no, you know, versus a modern diet where you're like, okay, God says don't eat sugar. You know, you're going to not, then you won't get maybe a diabetic reaction. But in this case, we're looking at a pre-scientific, but yet observational. So, you know, very smart people in this Iron Age could be looking at bad health outcomes. Somebody eats a piece of pork, 
that is infected with, say, a trichinosis and a bunch of people die, well, that would be pretty informative to say, hey, we shouldn't eat that. And so those things then become ritualized and sacralized and better enforced if we say God says don't eat it versus, you know, saying the old man of the tribe says don't eat it. And there is something to that with pigs. Now, I'm an Iowan and I love me some good pulled pork, but from a land management standpoint, pigs are really hard on the land. They can lead to all sorts of soil erosion based on how they tear up soil. They breed like crazy. So if you're not closely managing these things and you don't have a good centralized government to prevent it, I mean, they'll just grow out of control and really mess things up. As an easy way to prove this with your nose, if you drive by, say, a hog lot versus a cow pasture, you can tell pretty quickly which one you know deals better with the natural flow of land and affairs. There are other people in the ancient world, too, that have their own food prohibition. So it's not just in the Old Testament or not just in ancient Israel. What did Pythagoras say to his followers about food prohibition and what was his reasoning behind it? So a lot of what Pythagoras is thinking, and again, these are ideas that are new thoughts. These are people wrestling with understanding their place in the world. How does the world work? And so you get folks who are really smart and thinking about how do I explain this? So Pythagoras, again, and anybody remembering from high school geometry, did come up with some mathematical theories, but also had a spiritual component to it. He was a very early proponent of what we would call reincarnation and felt that souls migrate and that souls can migrate to not just other people, but could migrate to other living things. And very specifically, because of the representationalism, banned his followers from eating fava beans. And if you look at that bean shape, it looks sort of like a human fetus. And so that was whether he truly believed souls went into beans or if it was just a representational belief, we really don't know. But he did ban his followers from eating beans. The funny thing is, is that, you know, just because Pythagoras was saying it and putting it forward doesn't mean that everyone agreed with him. Even his contemporaries made fun of him. There were many kind of philosophical wags of the time that just that would make fun of Pythagoras by saying that he was just prone to flatulence, which is the reason he banned beans. So, again, even some of the food rules that were developed in the ancient times weren't universally followed. And just as today, where we sometimes make fun of people's food choices, so too did early man make fun of everyone else's food choices. All right. He was an early embryologist. He was. Do you see any common through line of food prohibitions in the ancient world? Was there just as much variety back then as there is today? Or did you see some common factors pop up, such as kind of an early FDA avoiding food contamination? Or was it as different as it is today, where one Greek city-state might ban a certain food and then the neighboring one may allow it and even require it as part of their religious observance? Do you see any common factors that stick out to you about the ancient world? So when we talk about the ancient world, there's a couple cutoff lines, too. So, so pre kind of age of exploration and when we talk about maybe about and again these are rough dates about 600 to 300 BC travel starts and trade starts so prior to that a lot of the prohibitions and the belief systems were very isolated because there wasn't as much travel people weren't sharing these ideas 
after that, when trade starts and people start exchanging ideas about spirituality and their beliefs about God, and of course about their beliefs about food, then we see some intermingling of groups adopting and kind of morphing one group's ideas to another group's ideas. And a good example of that is at the same time that Pythagoras was recommending not to eat beans, hundreds of not thousands of years earlier, people were following the Leviticus rules, while in the you know global south on the Indian subcontinent, there was uh, Jainism, which was a very old spiritual belief, and which is near vegan. They have very strict rules about what they can and can't eat. And these ideas then started to morph and get exchanged between each other in that kind of post-trade world as these ideas were getting exchanged. So it was isolated at first, and then they started to mix all together. A common claim that I see about fad diets is that there is some sort of tribe in Africa or a group of people living in Neolithic conditions as natural state of human affairs as you could possibly have. And because they follow this particular diet, they have perfect health, they have perfect teeth, they have no cancer. And I think I've heard this applied to all sorts of diets, whether it's keto, whether it's not having grains, whether it's Weston A. Price, whether it's all sorts of different things. Is there any argument to be made one way or another that this or that group of people had a quote unquote natural diet or based on you described it, well, that's, I mean, people were as diverse as they are today. There's Jainism over here. There are Israelites over here. There are Greeks over here. They're all doing different things. So it's hard to really say anything is natural. What's your take on that? So we have modern science that has done some really great research studies that can help answer the ancient question. There's something called the Blue Zone Study, and they've been a group of scientists following the health of certain groups in certain areas of the world. One of the healthiest people, groups of people, are the residents in Loma Linda, California. Why? Because most of them adhere to the Seventh-day Adventist belief and diet, which is exclusively vegetarian and many times vegan. And so following that diet has proven through modern science to have really healthy outcomes for people. You can have ideas about veganism. You can dislike it for all the other trappings that get attached to it. But what we're seeing right now from a purely analytical, nutritional, scientific, biological point of view is that veganism, vegetarianism leads to better health outcomes. Now, when we look at uh, that, the other groups that have really healthy outcomes are folks that live along the Mediterranean. So we follow the so-called Mediterranean diet, which again, lots of vegetarianism, but again, smaller amounts of meat proteins added. Those folks too have very healthy outcomes. So the takeaway is a diet that's heavy in vegetables and, you know, including legumes and beans and peas and that uh, as proteins and a small amount of meat, whether it's fish or pork or beef or poultry based, leads to a really healthy diet. Is there anything to be said for Plains Indians, which ate almost exclusively buffalo, although they did have some wild fruits and vegetables on the prairie to graze on? Or is that more of something that carnivore or lion diet people will hold up to say, oh, you can eat nothing but meat and you'll be fine. So take that, vegans. Yeah, you can take that, vegans, because human body structures are so complex, the gut biome. And so something when your example of, you know, native folks who are surviving a, a more of a meat heavy diet, you know, they're 
biological systems, the epigenetic pass-throughs, you know, things evolve that they're better equipped to process that heavy meat diet. So whereas someone who was raised in, say, you know, a lengthy, like a Jane culture who is primarily vegan goes and moves in somewhere where they only have meat available, they won't die per se, but they're going to get pretty sick as their body readjusts to trying to process and digest that kind of food. Something that I think when this argument is going on gets left out is anyone who practiced this type of eating, whether it was Jainism in the Indian subcontinent or Plains Indian, was walking 10 to 20 miles a day versus somebody in the U.S. who has a much more sedentary lifestyle. So whatever it is you're eating, if you're not really moving very much, a lot of it could be made moot. No, and to go with that is that's the idea of like what is a modern diet. And that's where people, I think, get into trouble trying to follow these ancient diets today is because we don't have the same gut biomes. We don't have the same, as you're saying, the physical activity. But also, we're also supplementing what our so-called healthy diets with a lot of processed junk, even if we think we're not. Very few people are following the 100 percent pure, you know, a natural diet, even, you know, there's vegan and vegetarian junk food as much as there's every other kind of junk food. Jumping up to the medieval era, the Catholic Church begins to include fasts or at least the prohibition of eating meat on Friday as part of Catholic custom. How does this development come about and how is this practice by and large in Catholicism? So to understand it, we go back even further where we're talking about the ancients is people have a history of both feasting and fasting. If all our food comes from a god, then when times are good, we thank our god by having a feast and honoring him for giving us food. And when times are bad, we mortify our bodies by giving up food. We offer up our suffering to our god in hopes that we can atone for our whatever transgression that made god withhold the food. And so just based on that very simple concept is these massive feasts and fasts and traditions in all religious beliefs are coming from. And so in the sense of Catholics, it's a very common thing to in the Abrahamic religions to make an animal sacrifice to celebrate a high holy day of some sort. And then conversely, to give up that meat, give up the prime the most expensive source of protein to show your humbleness before God. And that's where that fasting came from and on Fridays and on High Holy Days is to give up meat. And then later, different popes and different interpretations of that kind of very funny changed the classification of what is meat. And fish then became not meat and therefore acceptable to eat on Fridays. Friday being always the traditional old fasting day in the Catholic tradition. Hey everyone, Scott here. We're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsors. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Coming to the United States after the Great Awakenings, there's a whole cottage industry of food fads, cookbooks, especially in utopian communities, because you have people who start them who have all sorts of opinions about self-sufficiency and farming, who have no experience whatsoever in farming and self-sufficiency. So it's great to be a year of university student who is getting into Greek and the classics, but you've never actually farmed before. So you can forbid people to eat meat or consume stimulants or use any foreign animal labor, but then try to actually feed a community and things get a little bit trickier. So can you discuss the growth of these religious movements and the influence they have on diets? Of that time period, the Great Awakening, is we have to go back to the freedom allowed by the actual incorporation of the United States and that First Amendment, the Establishment Clause, which means that there is no state religion and the state can't prohibit anyone from building their own religion, essentially, whereas people coming from Europe, you know, even if on the books today, England has the Church of England. That is the state religion. We don't have that in the United States. So groups were able to kind of break off and with new ideas and new ideas about how to believe as well as then how to eat. And so then that's where you get the start of folks like the successful ones-ish, like the Oneida. The Oneida was called a perfectionist group. They felt that they needed to do nothing, really, because that after Christ died for your sins, that was it. Perfect. So we just need to follow some basic rules. The good part is, is they weren't great farmers, but they were pretty good manufacturers. And that's where we have like Oneida Silverware today is born out of that specific group. About the same time, more famously, is a commune called Fruitlands. And it got famous because of one of the founders was the parent of Louisa May Alcott, the writer of Little Women. And her diaries of living at Fruitlands are really grim and funny at the same time because they speak to what you were just talking about, Scott, which is a bunch of very philosophical, university-educated guys are going to start a commune and have zero understanding of actually how to grow anything. And they nearly starve to death. And so between the two extremes, you have a number of groups, and it really depends on how and where they're coming from. So a lot of the American homegrown groups have some challenges in figuring out how to become farmers and how to be self-sustainable to follow their own food rules. Whereas some of the groups that were coming from Europe already had an agricultural background and were able to establish these groups and become pretty sufficient in what they were doing and what they were growing. The Shakers, for example, a little bit pre-Great Awakening, but really took off after the Great Awakening, after like the 1840s. And they were extraordinarily gifted in orchardry. 
And we're are responsible for creating a number of the hybrid apples that we still use today. Yeah, there's a certain element of creative destruction here where people who don't have agricultural experience are failing. But then you have some people come in with, let's call it first principles thinking and come up with really creative contributions to our food culture. One interesting part of Onita culture is their infamous strawberry shortcake. How does this fit into the Onita community? And can you explain this? Oh, part of the Oneida with the, how they viewed themselves and one of their tenets was that they were not subject to man's law. And marriage, traditional marriage, was something that man invented. Not God did not. And so they caught a reputation as a free love cult because they weren't getting married, but they were still, you know, enjoying sexual congress. And out of that period interest, as the rumors spread around the community, people wanted to see you know, the sex cult. And the Oneida took great advantage of it by charging admission on Sunday afternoons, would invite anybody in, come hang out with us and see what we do. And of course, people were disappointed because, you know, they were just fairly normal people, but they would start serving lunch and most famously the strawberry shortcake. The strawberry shortcake was so popular that people stopped thinking that it was a sex cult and just came on Sunday afternoons just to essentially enjoy this beautiful countryside and have an outdoor picnic catered by the Oneida and, you know, hang around with some light entertainment. And that took that idea of, you know, outdoor picnics and the strawberry shortcake. And then they brought those back home to the area and it became a very popular dessert. Mention that next time somebody serves that up as a fun little factoid. Did you know this is uh, a sex cult made this? So uh, what do you think about that? The roots of many popular foods have interesting origins, and it goes to these ideas about sacralizing food. And something is prepared with love and with reverence, and you see that with some of the more Indian influence, the called prasad or prasadam. You know, it's holy food. It becomes holy food because it's made with the intention to imbue the spirit of their God into the food. Another religious movement that has a lot of influence on food culture are the Seventh-day Adventists, which we discussed earlier as having a long lifespan. Their origin is interesting. They're mostly an offshoot of William Miller, who predicted the return of Christ in the 1840s. And I have a whole episode on that if listeners are interested about the prediction, how people prepared and what happened when it didn't come to pass. And many left, but then others hung around and that led to Seventh-day Adventism. So can you describe that movement in the 19th century and how does this give us Little Debbie snack cakes and Kellogg cereals? And so the Adventists were vegetarian. William Miller wasn't, but as that after post-1844 and for the next 10 to 15 years, there were just different rogue elements of Millerites and the Millers' ideas. And it was the Seventh-day Adventist group that kind of coalesced first and became much more organized. And that's, you know, Ellen White started noting things and writing more about Miller's belief. And those beliefs kind of, you know, changed in a little bit until it really became its own thing. It was also taking, again, inspiration from the Bible about especially the notion that, it, you know, the human body is God's temple. And so it behooves that a human being to take care of that body. It doesn't really belong to you. It belongs to God. And so this idea of healthy eating, 
physical activity outside of just your normal day work was a really critical element to the SDA. One of the other elements to it is that they were putting forward food ideas that were, you know, unfamiliar to a lot of people. So as a way to ease the way for new believers, as well as a recruitment tool, they did start publishing cookbooks. It where we go to the grocery store today and buy a tofurkey or tofu is easily accessible, a gluten loaf, you know, was something that required some skill and knowledge to make. And so having the cookbooks was helpful, but then the next step was actually making the food. And as Seventh-day Adventism grew with the whole industrial revolution and manufacturing elements and the consolidation of corporatized food uh, versus, you know, small farms, to larger farms. And so all of these things converged together to come food companies. And the SDA really were at the forefront of starting food companies. And again, you mentioned Kellogg's, Little Debbie Snack Cakes. Little Debbie Snack Cakes aren't owned by the SDA anymore. And so the recipe itself has changed. They do use a cocoa powder now. But in the very earliest incarnations of it, it used carob as a chocolate substitute. And carob had great religious significance because it's also known as St. John's bread, which was theoretically the food that was given by God to Jesus when he was fasting in the desert. So all of these small little things have significance for believers. And over time, that significance is often lost, but the food itself remains, like Little Debbie snack cakes, Kellogg's, Morningstar brand, Worthington brand, all of these brands of like pre-made vegetarian foods have their roots in the SDA. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, changes in U.S. tax law allow nonprofit status to be applied to religious groups, which allows faith communities to be able to continue to function without being crushed by a heavy tax burden. But this is where a number of opportunists come along, leading to sort of popular preachers who could take advantage of radio, laying the groundwork for televangelists decades later. And within this messy matrix of religion and money and dietary law, there are cookbooks and there are food fads that spring out of this interesting mix. Can you describe what's going on at this time period? Again, there's a lot of growth in the new religious movements themselves. There's much more of an influence coming now as we get to the 20th century of interest in Eastern religions. There are missionaries coming from India. There's also missionaries coming from Japan spreading Buddhism, especially on the West Coast. And so as Americans start following and adopting, they also then break off and follow and create new traditions. And out of that tradition, you'll see a lot of food culture. And the change in the tax laws allowed for these revenue streams to both help the church and help the groups, help the organization bring money in to be self-sustaining, and as well as food would be an outreach, a way to, to spread the good word to people. So that you saw in the 20th century, restaurants. So we saw cookbooks starting to come along in the late 1800s, early 1900s, 1920s. Now you start seeing restaurants. And that's where it starts to go a little off the rails because many of the leaders of these new religious movements and even cults would staff the restaurants with believers. And that was part of their quote-unquote religious service and it meant that they weren't paid. And so the revenue coming in was pure revenue. As long as you could cover your costs, it was a pretty tidy sum. And more often than not, a lot of the leaders of these groups 
kind of skimmed some of that money. It didn't always go to the organization. And a lot of groups got in trouble, not so much for abusing a follower, but for violating tax and labor laws. The influence of Eastern religions on the United States, especially with food, really comes about in the 20th century. And this goes way before the 1960s when the Beatles were meditating with the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. And this goes all the way back, like you said, to the late 19th century with the world's parliament of religions bringing Eastern and Western religions together, the Theosophist movement in the United States that has uh, heavy Eastern influences. With the increase of Eastern religions on the United States, how does this also affect food culture and the understanding of religion and food? What the Eastern religions brought is their very thousand-year-old food traditions. And we talked earlier about Jainism. Jainism is a highly vegan and a highly restrictive diet. Many of what, you know, the kind of overarching term Hindu religions have some very strict rules. One of the things that got lost when those ideas came to the United States was that the strictest of food prohibitions applied only to monks and to folks in the monastery or in an ashram during a period of isolation or intense prayer. It didn't always apply to just the average person walking down the street. So as it comes over here, we tended to take all of the most restrictive food ideas that were applicable to the priests and monks and applied it to anyone who was believing. And that's where you get some of the really strict food prohibitions and the cults that are coming up in the 1930s and 20s. And they start to have some very odd food ideas because they're coming to it without a full understanding of how it started. What do you see as the new interest in uh, historical religious food prohibitions that are becoming popular now? And what I'm thinking of with this topic is fasting. There's been all sorts of interest in recent years with the health benefits of fasting, that it triggers autophagy in your body that helps sort of clean house and target precancerous cells so it could lower incidence of cancer. It can reduce the likelihood for type 2 diabetes. And some of the books I've seen on fasting will point to ancient practices, whether it's Ramadan for Muslims, that for large portions of the day, you're not eating anything that feeds an intermittent fasting, or they would point to much longer water-only fasts like Jesus fasting for 40 days in the desert or people taking on the Nazarene vow. With recent interest in fasting and people pointing to these ancient religious customs, what's your take on all this, having this be your area of specialty? Scott here. One more break for a word from our sponsors. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This episode is brought to you by Calitrin. Calitrin is a weight loss supplement made from collagen protein and digestive enzymes. Calitrin is designed to assist the body in repairing and rebuilding lean muscle using top quality ingredients. The reason it contains collagen, which is the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the body, is because it decreases as we age. Because Calitrin rebuilds this critical protein, it promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. I tried it for a month, slept great, felt more energetic, and noticeably shed weight that was gained over the holidays. Calitrin has an 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. Here are some customer testimonials. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calitrin. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. And Diane not only lost weight, but found relief from arthritis. This week, you can take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free, plus free shipping. Ordering is extremely easy. Just text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605, and you'll get a link to this special offer. Text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605. Again, text UNPLUGGED to 30605. It's interesting because a lot of what modern, you know, American fasting looks like comes actually from the nature mention from the early 1900s. It was a German idea as a reaction to the industrialization of both Europe and the United States. This idea is back to nature. How do you get back to nature? We go back to the most ancient. We live as primitive man did. So naked, outdoors, physically active and like ancient peoples looking to religious scripture for inspiration, fasting. And many of the naturopathic doctors of that time saw health benefits for people. But again, it's always contextualized. The diet of that era in the Victorian era was very meat heavy, very carbohydrate heavy, lend itself to like poor digestion. And so if you're eating that type of diet all the time, taking a break and fasting for a few days is actually going to give your system a chance to actually process and digest that food. So there were some immediate visible benefits from fasting when we talk about it 1910s, 1920s. And so that informs the opinions of today. So we tend to have, as Americans, it's just the reality of it, we don't have a great diet. It's heavy on processed foods and it's heavy on sugar and salt. And so taking a break from that is actually going to, you know, again, help your system because it does work in that very biological sense. Again, we tend to sacralize it. We look back to ancient religious beliefs and spiritual practices and then connect the two. So much so is something that's very popular in modern Protestant churches is what's called the Daniel fast that it which again it's a near vegan diet that was described in the Old Testament as something that Daniel as a Jewish prince was captured by and held captive in Babylon was not going to eat the king's food because it wasn't following the practices of Leviticus and ate essentially a vegan diet. They remained alive when their captors were convinced they were just going to die. if They didn't eat any meat. And so modern practitioners following that Protestant Christianity have looked then to the Daniel fast as a modern way to eat like Daniel did and be healthy. And, you know, that it's a spiritually inspired fast. Getting to the big idea of your book and thinking about morals and diet coming together. We've looked at a lot of different cases in the modern world and the ancient world, and some of them appear a little bit strange, the religious prohibitions on certain types of food. And we can be glib, but 
as we saw, many people, many of whom might not be religious, will still have a very strong moral component to what they eat or what they don't eat, whether it's veganism. There's also a new trend of people focusing on awful meats, O-F-F-A-L, like liver, and we'll say that you know, all sorts of ancient texts before men would go to war, they would eat liver. The Aeneid mentions this, the life-giving meats. So this is what we need to focus on. And they could have just as much zeal explaining this as somebody who's religious about it. So thinking about how I would say just about everybody brings a moral component to what they eat or don't eat. What has your research said about this and the human experience about our relation to our food? A lot of what we do with food culture is about recognition. If we take it back to the basics of sharing a meal with someone is an act of trust, right? Food poisoning, intentional poisoning, bad food safety measures. When you're eating someone else's food, it is an, that act of trust that builds community. And so this modern idea of these food rules and the moral aspects of it often have this idea of like, who are we eating with? And what kinds of foods are we sharing? And it becomes a way to identify and build a community. So all the warriors together are going to eat, you know, the same liver. And again, it becomes a form of social bonding. Not only do we like the same things, we also hate the same things. And so these have these moral judgments put on it, even if you're not subscribed to that particular belief. It goes back to Aristotle, who actually what we think of as the seven deadly sins, many of them are food-related, gluttony. And so Aristotle defined them, Thomas Aquinas then refined them and made them even more judgmental. And even if we're not familiar with the all the, those seven deadly sins and to name them all, is we still carry around that moral judgment. Oftentimes you'll see someone who is a body type in an extremity, whether they're very, very thin or very, very large, we immediately make a moral judgment about they're eating too little, they're eating too much, and we have no idea of the facts of it. And so by ascribing all this morality to what we eat and what others eat, it's a way of keeping ourselves within our community and keeping ourselves kind of safe if, you know, to go that further. Well, I know I'm not going to eat the X, Y, Z. And so that's going to protect me from, you know, physical danger, from diseases, but it's also going to keep me safe from God's judgment. And so that's where you get a lot of those food ideas today, that the morality that is imbued in it and without even having the religiosity. Well, as we can see here, ancient and modern religions have a whole lot of influence on what we eat. Thank you for sharing all this with us. And for listeners who want to check out Christina's book, the name of it is Holy Food, How Cults, Communes, and Religious Movements Influence What We Eat. Christina, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Scott. It's been a pleasure. That's all for today's episode. If you'd like to see show notes with sources, maps, links, anything else related to this episode, and all my other ones as well, go to parthenonpodcast.com. That's the name of the podcast network this show is a part of, along with James Early's Key Battles of American History, Steve Guerra's Beyond the Big Screen and History of the Papacy, and other great history shows as well. If you'd like to support the show, the two easiest ways to do so are to subscribe to it on the podcast player of your choice and leave a review. The second thing is to join the membership program for History Unplugged. If you do so, you'll get completely ad-free episodes for the entire back catalog, which is about 600 episodes and growing. 
And all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash unplugged. Thanks for listening and see you next time.